I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Simon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with your investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds, at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 46, we read One Nation, Two Cultures by Gertrude Himmelfarb from 1999. Gertrude Himmelfarb was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1922, the daughter of Russian Jewish immigrants. She attended Brooklyn College, graduating in 1942 with a BA after a triple major in history, economics, and philosophy. She earned a PhD from the University of Chicago in 1950, by which time she had married Irving Kristol, whose works we discussed in episode 10. Together, she and Kristol moved from committed leftists to number among the founders of the neoconservative movement. Himmelfarb published her first book in 1952 and would be the author of 15 more, as well as many articles. She died in 2019 at the age of 97. Gertrude Himmelfarb passed away only uh, in the last several weeks. And as because of that, Kyle and I thought it'd be a good time to pick up one of her books. I had never read anything of hers. Didn't know much about her, to be honest. So that's why I wanted to give this a go. One Nation, Two Cultures, this book presents Himmelfarb's, basically her autopsy of American cultural decline. So she was known as a leading historian of the Victorian age, probably the leading historian. And so in this book, she describes how Victorian values prevailed in America for most of the country's history. And while there was always a, a side culture, which she calls, you know, bohemian or avant-garde, basically she'll, she'll call it the a loose morality. That, that subculture always existed, but it ran underneath the, hmm. the larger Victorian culture. At some point, she's going to say, at some point in the 20th century, um, America went through a cultural revolution and this side loose culture started to become the prevailing culture. And Himmelfarb wants to explain to us how it happened. And I think it has tons of application for today. It's not just a story of the 60s, but also, you know, how I think our culture continues to change in contemporary America. Yeah, the, Vic- the Victorian age is sort of a, <clears throat> a high watermark for what she calls the austere culture as the opposite of the loose culture. A time when what we often think of as, you know, middle-class virtues became you know, they started to creep down into the poorer classes and also into the upper classes, which in Europe were usually the most uh, decadent and, uh, you know, loosely moral people because, as Himmelfarb points out, they could afford to be, you know. I mean, if all of the virtues that lead to success in this life, if you don't follow them and you don't have any money, you end up broke pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Whereas, a, you know, a duke or somebody could... Uh, you know, have all these mistresses and be drunk all the time and, you know, have all sorts of, you know, other <clears throat> immoral acts. And he's still a duke, you know, he's still got all these lands and tenant farmers bringing money in and for him and investment. So it's, you know, it, it's, it's sort of thing that we see it today too, you know, like Hollywood is like this, right? They don't have to have virtues like, I mean, she, she talks about work, thrift, temperance, fidelity, self-reliance, self-discipline, cleanliness, and godliness. You know, these are the Victorian virtues. And, you know, if, if you follow that sort of life, a lot of, you know, it'll often 
have rewards. You know, hard work and thrift, that alone will get you pretty far. Mm-hmm. You know, temperance is to say, you know, staying off drugs and alcohol, or at least using them in moderation. You know, the sort of things that we think of as traditional virtues, but you know, the the, uh, the aristocratic class in, in Europe and to a lesser extent here in America, because we don't have a true aristocracy, they were able to get away with that stuff and, you know, have that sort of counterculture, you know, within the within their social sphere and still survive. So, you know, at, at the time before the Victorian age, that 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 religiosity and, and, and discipline was more a mark of the middle class and to some extent the lower class. Mm-hmm. And as she tells the story, as she says, as society became more open and affluent, morality and culture were liberalized and democratized. And that loose system of morality um, became made available to everyone. And uh, she recounts the the rise of the counterculture, counterculture feeding upon other revolutions, fostering a growing disaffection with established institutions and authorities and rejection of conventional behavior. So she, she labels these additional revolutions at the same time, the cultural revolution magnified by other currents. She says racial revolution inspired by the civil rights movement, sexual revolution abetted by birth control pill and feminism. And I mean, I think we, we probably underestimate the, the impact that, that the birth control pill had on the world, you know, I mean, cause we were just kind of mm-hmm. born into that situation. But if you could suddenly now decide when you get pregnant and have kids while at the same time the economy is has advanced to a point where having a strong back was not necessarily the the most valued characteristic of of a worker i mean those two things at the same time so she says the technological revolution i mean having the birth control pill and no longer needing to lift things Mm -hmm. for for money i mean what a that that's absolutely revolutionary. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a liberation from some of the effects of nature that, you know, had for better or worse constrained humanity since the beginning. So that, I mean, it is, it is huge. And, you know, we talk about technic, you know, technology affecting us today with like the cell phone and stuff, but I don't know if there's a bigger change than that. I mean, those two things, um, you know, controlling reproduction and, having new kinds of work that don't depend on strength that, I mean, Mm -hmm. those are, there's no way that wasn't going to reshape society when, you know, it doesn't mean that people have to stop having kids, but they can, you know, Mm -hmm. it it gives us, it's, you know, liberating. And then like with most liberations, it means, okay, now we have to decide to do what we think is right rather than just having, you know, the state, you know, of our natural lives thrust upon us, you know, people, People didn't really have any control over how many kids they had. I mean, I guess they could not have sex, but, you know, within a marriage, that's uh, unlikely. So, mm-hmm. you know, now all of a sudden you, like all these other things, you have, you have liberty in a way, but now, now it, now it falls on individuals or couples to say, okay, but how do we live right? And then, yeah. It's, yeah. And I think it, one of her, one of her key theses here is she said the counterculture intended to liberate everyone from the stultifying influence of bourgeois values also liberated a good many people from those values or virtues that had a stabilizing and moralizing effect on society. What she means by that is, you know, the birth control pill, technology, it really 
it, it really was liberating. And I think a, a good thing, you know, for, for women to have more, more control over their lives, but there, there were consequences. And she says, you know, a breakdown of the family and we're going to, we're going to, you know, talk a little bit more about this later, but she says the haves, the cultural elites in the 1960s who legitimized and glamorized the counterculture, it dislocated their lives temporarily. You know, you had having kids out of wedlock in the Victorian age was absolutely scandalous. And then you move into this counterculture where having, you know, having kids or not, you know, having sex outside of marriage and everything, all that was great and fine. And now we've, you know, as Charles Murray pointed out, we've, we've already, we've moved back so that the, the elite on the left are now saying, yeah, we don't want to have kids that are lucky anymore. Like, but, but yet there is a left in the wreckage though. It says, uh, the underclass is not only the victim of its own culture of poverty, it's also the victim of upper-class culture around it because the, the upper-class was able to recover and is now basically living a 1950s lifestyle. Mm-hmm. But those, those who are not as fortunate, and you pointed this out, who you know, don't have the money or you know, don't have the wherewithal, not, you know, they're kind of left in the wreckage. Yeah, the cultural guidelines falling away and it's you know it's like if you if you ever look up in your family tree and you look at your great-grandparents almost all of them are going to have been married mm-hmm. i mean things things went on in the old days too but and it's not because those people were necessarily individually more moral than we are but they lived in a society that was more moral so yeah. it wasn't you know they might be having sex before marriage but if the woman got pregnant well you know what you gotta do get married that's it you know and there wasn't now we have a choice and, you know, choice is good, but a lot of people are not equipped to make good choices, you know, whereas so now society just guides you in the direction of do what you want, do what's convenient, do what makes you feel good, mm-hmm. you know, maximize joy. Whereas, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, it would be about maximizing virtue. I thought one, one point she, she talked about it, and I think it was in this first chapter, is, you know, you talk about the various revolutions that happened and, you know, the the good parts that came out of them, you know, the, the civil rights revolution, she says, and, and we agree a, a good thing, you know, I mean, to, and mm-hmm. segregation and, and institutionalized racism like that. But she, she asks whether it's possible to have one without the other, you know, is it necessarily in, in ending those old structures, you know, and likewise with the, with the birth control issue, you know, is it possible to, get rid of the bad without also bringing in these new good things. And she doesn't get into it that much, but I think it's, it's worth thinking about. I mean, I think you could have had a civil rights movement that didn't entail all the other stuff, but I'm not sure about, I, I think the sexual revolution has, it's impossible for it not to have consequences. Yeah. And, and I think that it's just the, the wheel keeps of turning forward, mm. you know, because, you know, she, she talks about, uh, how notable, you know, the television was a game changer and also for the sexual revolution it was a game changer because now all these things are, you know, on TV or, or available. And obviously that's just been kicked into hyperdrive. I mean, she wrote this in the nineties and even since yeah. the nineties, which doesn't seem that long ago to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's hard to remember um, what it is, but it's a, it's a lifetime away. And for my kids, they wouldn't even understand that world. They barely understand 
the concept of a phone being tied to the wall. Mm -hmm. What do you mean? (laughs) Why don't you just keep it in your pocket? (laughs) And so that as that, that wheel of technology like keeps turning and moving forward faster, 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 it can't be controlled. And I think when we read the Deneen book, he touched on this a little bit, you know, can you have the good without the bad? Can you have, can you raise people out of poverty with, with uh, the free market? Can we harness all the tremendous uh, upside of the free market without taking the downside, which is, you know, the atomizing of people and, mm-hmm. and turning families into, you know, uh, roommates and that sort of thing. And it seems like there's really no, no path to keeping the good without the bad. I don't know what you think, but I read that line in this book too. And thought, and it just really strikes me that one thing we've learned over this past year of reading these books is, you know, conservatives want better culture and also want a free market where, you know, on, and the liberals, they want liberation of the individual and then more government control of the market. And they're both losing on the main things that they care about most. <laughs> yeah. And, and she, she kind of gets into the other structures besides government too, in the next couple chapters, talking about civil society, which, you know, we, we talk a lot about community on this podcast and about, we read Nisbet's book, the search for community. You know, we read all of these books that talk about the intermediary institutions that used to be between us and the government that would sort of, which uh, somebody she quotes called them the seed beds of virtue. Mm-hmm. I find one, one of the more interesting points here is when Himmelfarb talks about a civil society isn't going to do it for you. You know I mean? I think because she talks about like, the left and right, both put a lot of trust in this idea of civil society, but much of civil society is infected with the same sort of lack of values that the government's infected by, you know, you get this, you know, the refusal to, you know, call good, good and evil, evil, the, you mm-hmm. know, the refusal to, to make a judgment call about somebody's behavior, you know, that the government isn't going to do it because our government has tried its best to get out of the morality business. And, and although she later points out that it's not out of the morality business, because every time you make a choice, you're making a moral choice, but civil society is kind of, I mean, to one extent, it, it reflects the people and so does the government. And they're both reflecting a, a people that's lost the ability to judge. Mm-hmm. And also a lot of the institutions of civil society have gotten to the place where they're just conduits for, for government money and with it government policy. Cause once you take that government money, you can't impose your own values that much. I mean, we, we remember the faith-based initiatives thing from the second Bush administration which was a good idea. You know, I mean, if you're going to help, if you're going to have community organizations, it's okay that they be churches and synagogues also, you know, but that doesn't change that the aid being distributed from the government is still government money with government rules and, or, or lack of some rules and also some lack of rules where there should be rules. Yeah. Let's share what she means by civil society. She says, families, communities, churches, civic and cultural organizations. These are the kind of institutions that mediate between the individual and the state and restrain excessive individualism. It's basically, she says, the little platoons of Burke. You know, we, when we read Edmund Burke in an earlier episode, talking about the little platoons that 
she says, imbues individuals with a sense of duties as, and responsibilities as well as rights and privileges, you know, and, and is at that smaller scale, democracy on the smallest scale. And to, to your point about how everyone, you know, kind of in theory supports this, they do, but she she gives us, she describes the, the dilemma with kind of reinvigorating civil society. So on the one hand, you have what she calls the hard advocates, which let's say these are more religious conservatives or you'd say they want to endow civil society with the authority to limit excesses of both individualism and statism. And they want to restore the institutions and the force of social and moral persuasion. So this is kind of in the Amari French, Sorab Amari and David French argument. And Mm -hmm. we had an episode on that. This is kind of where Sorab Amari comes down is we want, we actually want a hard authority to come in and legislate morality, basically like let's, let's reinforce it. You know, let's, let's reinvigorate and reestablish kind of the, the, that Victorian morality and mindset. And she, then she says, but then you have some soft proponents. These are probably most Democrats. Like they seek more participation of people in local communities. So they like civil society, but only for the purpose of civic revival and not moral revival, hmm. you know, civic. So that internet site, you know, meetup or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that the so, social media, you know, like let's, let's find people and find new communities so they're not so lonely, but the last thing we want to do is impose morality. And then the others, she says, and I think this is where David French had fallen down. Others, although not dismissive of morality in principle, are wary of its implementation. They deplore the excessive autonomy of the individual and the proliferation of rights, but are not prepared to take the practical measures that would effectively limit that autonomy and those rights. And and I, I, I find myself in this space as well. I totally agree that we need a, as a culture, like reestablish these values that bring happiness and success and fulfillment in life. But I, I think, you know, David French, and I feel this way too. I'm a little skeptical of the, our ability to sort of collectively shove it down the throats because, mm-hmm. you know, who's in charge today and who's in charge tomorrow are two very, very different things. And for sort of Amari, I mean, he's a Catholic. I, I just don't see Catholicism sort of <laughs> overwhelming American culture anytime soon, at least. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I think that that view takes a, he's too confident in the ability to change the dominant culture, which I think as we'll see, as we get to the end of this book, Himmelfarb does not expect uh, the dominant culture to be rolled back yeah. in any meaningful way. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to a lot of what Amari says, but I, I, I probably do come down on the French side of it more often because it like you say yeah who's i don't trust the next administration even if i were to trust this one and i don't totally trust this one but you know if mm-hmm. yeah you don't know who's coming in next if it's bernie sanders i don't want him to have the power to impose values on this country because absolutely because he, he's a communist that's crazy but yeah that's the part that i i when i'm listening to these democratic candidates for president they views like well the president should just do it you know or i mean kamala harris was talking about that when she was running just well if congress doesn't act i will (laughs) that okay if you want that power i understand why you want it but you're not going to be in that seat forever Mm -hmm. i don't know how they don't get that having lost the last election and and, you know it's not like they're you know we want to give more power to the executive branch well who's the executive right now that doesn't make any sense for you but 
Yeah, and we've seen we've seen kind of the the downside of that with Trump and trade. You know, so much power. You know, so much authority. Congress just handed over to the president. And, yeah, and we we did have the USMCA success, but I mean, he's he's just wreaking havoc in trade. Yeah. That should be something Congress is wreaking havoc in. Yeah, absolutely. I guess to return to the point, she also um, talks about the the family. You know, the original platoon of Burke being corrupted by the same growth of relativism and loose morality. You know, they talk about families, society, the list institution, one that, you know, for almost our entire history was presumed to be the, the source of authority, the organizing piece of society. That's the most important. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it was also where we took care of each other. You know, we raise children, you take care of your old folks, people who are disabled, you know, the family, helps that helps the strong members help the weak basically mm-hmm. you know it's it's like a society in miniature in a way and i think the decline of the family she attributes to a, a lot of it's the sexual revolution and, and also just the, the growth of, of the welfare state so like yeah. now you can choose your own do you want to get married i don't know maybe do you want to get divorced okay and then you know who's going to take care of your elderly parents well they get a, they get a check from the government now Oh, okay. They're like, who's going to educate your kids? Well, that's that's also free. You know, who's who's going to take care of them if you don't? Well, they don't have to go live with an aunt or uncle. They, the government will also do that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can see why these, and and I think she she says these are these were well intentioned policies because you know people were looking at vulnerable people, you know, not being taken care of and saying, well, we can't have this. It's you know, we're we're a rich nation. We should be able to take care of the weak among us. Mm-hmm. But what it does is also destroy the authority of, of fathers and, and mothers. And because now, like many of the institutions of civil society, they're still giving out the money, but they're not giving out the rules. Right. You know, yeah. and, you know, she talks about how a few generations ago, the idea that you're not taking care of your elderly parent would be shameful. Mm-hmm. Now it's, it's like, it's completely reversed. The old, the old people, don't want the young people to take care of them. You know, they've got their social security. They've got a pension if they're lucky. You know, they've got these things. They've got Medicare. They want to live on their own down Florida or Arizona, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, and you know, it's, I admit it would have been a different, uh, probably more tense household if my grandmother had come to live with us. But, <laughs> yeah. but there was also some good in those old structures, you know, that, of uh, the intergenerational family together. Yeah. So if the family's where we get our start in understanding how the world works, it's something, it's a, it's a place that's drastically changed in the past, say 50 years. Yeah. And she makes the point that we've, you know, that Charles Murray made many times and you just made about how the welfare state just really lets these men off the hook. I mean, there's no, there's no better policy for facilitating the ability of men to just, you know, have kids and take off than, mm. than the welfare state because yes, government will just take care of them. And on the one hand, I think that's very important that the government does take care. Somebody needs to, mm-hmm. but you know, had we, if we could replay this video game, you know, I think we could have been much smarter. It's probably, you know, too late now, but it just irritates me so bad that these, these guys, I mean, forget about child support. They don't even they don't even show up. Half these kids don't even know who their dad is. And then on for the women, you know, she 
kind of Himmelfarb will describe the the downside of the sexual revolution for for women and going to work. I mean, I, you know, my wife works, my mom did. I mean, it's, I'm a, I'm I'm a fan, and I'm in you know I'm in favor of women pursuing their own interests and dreams. But she, but you know, there are trade offs. She says the opportunity to have a career to be liberated from the confines of family and domesticity has been the goal of feminists for over a century. And, you know, it's a good goal. Okay. Mm -hmm. Having realized that goal though, many women are discovering that it has been purchased at considerable cost. A career is more demanding for the woman than for the man because she still has primary responsibility for the care of the children. Many women are becoming disillusioned with daycare also because even the best daycare is inferior to ordinary parental care. I mean, I hear this all the time from people. Mm -hmm. Single mothers have no or few alternatives, but married women may decide to forego the amenities provided by additional income, at least in the early years. So actually my wife did stay home and until recently now our, our baby is in kindergarten. So, so she's gone back to work. But what Himmelfarb doesn't say is what's more often the case in my experience is the single mothers or those who don't have high powered careers, they are stuck with daycare and, you know, using, using the, local taekwondo you know shop to like pick up their kids and and man it's just stressful and so hard and the women who do have you know more high powered more money uh, careers they almost all get nannies mm-hmm. and so that's how you kind of get away from it is well the nanny is not as good of a, of a parent as as the parents oftentimes but it's better than daycare type of thing it's just i mean it's just a it's a really tough situation. Yeah. So she I says mean, the pursuit of a career more and more women realize is not an absolute good. It's, it's definitely one of the, the, the trade-offs like she talked about earlier. You know, I mean, you, if you were to go into the past and say to women back then who were fighting for more equality, say, you know, in the future, you're going to be able to work. There's not going to, you know, it, it's going to be fine. Most women will work. You'll be able to have that career outside the house. But I, th- I don't think you can separate that from the conditions that created the things that made it possible for men to be irresponsible. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, it, if, in the old days, if, if the man ran off, there was really no way the woman could work and support all the kids he left behind. Yeah. That was part of the what made guys have to stay because your, your family would force you to come back and just look, go to work. You know, stop messing around. You've got got six kids now. You got to take care of them. Mm-hmm. So now he can, you know, never marry the mother. Take off. Do what he wants. You know, work. Sure, maybe just bum around. And because she now has the freedom to work, it it kind of it's like all the freedom passes to the deadbeat dad. You know, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like she's the conduit, yeah. but because she's still got the kids, and you know, yeah, she. You know, women are way less likely to just abandon their kids than, than guys are. It does happen, but yeah, I mean, our single dads out there who are living that same life, but it's a lot rarer, I think. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I, it's can you have one without the other? I, I don't think you can. It just yeah, it scrambles everything. No, I love your point because I think it's exactly right that the the perverse outcome is the uh, liberation of of women going to work is actually just cleared the path for men to be lazy. And, <laughs> and, and so what happens, I, I have this conversation with, with folks that I work with all the time who had, I mean, uh, remember when we took the quiz for Charles Murray, like I, you know, I grew up in a pretty working class place. M- 
very few women actually want to go to work. Very few men actually want to go to work. I mean, give me a break. Like there's relatively few people in America who, who have quote unquote careers. Like I'm excited to go to work because I've got Mm -hmm. this career. I mean, most people just have a job pay the yeah. bills and if, if they were if it was up to them they wouldn't go you know like oh yeah i'd rather stay home i mean most most women in my experience granted i'm a man and a white guy and so you know i'm not woke saying this but i think most women would rather stay home with their kids if they could you know what hap- what has happened now is they can't and the guys you know they're the ones who get to stay home and and you know work odd jobs and kind of be lazy because they they get off scot-free because they 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 don't feel that sense of responsibility for the kids the same the same way and now they actually don't have to work because well the government's going to take care of my kids so you know the world is now my oyster to play video games or whatever yeah i mean the the welfare state takes the rough edges off of poverty but it also kind of takes the rough edges off of ambition you know where an old system would force you to be ambitious because like look i need more money you know keep having all these kids, <laughs> you know, my wife doesn't work. I need money. So I'll take that second job the way like a lot of our dads and granddads did. And, you know, yeah. I'll, yeah, I'll work overtime when they're given it, you know, and I'll, I'll do, you know, do various things on the side, try to get a better job. You know, I mean, and people still do that. I mean, America is still full of ambitious people, but I feel like that the old uh, standards pushed you into that more because it was sink or swim. You know, so it's, you lose this, you lose the really worst effects of so many people sinking because the man in their family is either bad or just incapable or, or dies, you know, you, so you don't have that, but then now you have the, it's less incentive, I guess. Mm-hmm. All right. So in chapter four, she talks about, uh, law and order and, the lawlessness that is that's changed she says lawlessness even on the smallest scale undermines communities and she quotes the that uh, political science re- sociolo- sociological research on broken windows how a broken window generates an atmosphere of lawlessness that is con- conducive to crime and it used to be the case that it was just part of the culture to clean that up but now she says laws are not enforced and there's media antipathy towards in- imprisonment she she gives this new york times headline example that I thought was great. She says, this, this is the headline from the New York Times. Even as crime falls, inmates increase. She says, <laughs> right. as if the incarceration of criminals has nothing to do with the decline, decline of crime. It's almost like the New York Times never dawned on them. Like, hey, if we take the, the criminals off the street, maybe there's less crime. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. And that really, that really was, that puts the whole, that's in a sentence, the difference between a liberal and a conservative on, on, law and order right there yeah yeah so she talks about a balance of law too you know i mean that there we see lawlessness and i think part of the libertarian in me says that's because there's too many laws we can't enforce them all but i mean she she mentions just two things people say as sort of the the brackets of how much law there should be it's like people say there ought to be a law when you see something that's really not right Mm. and we still say that and you hear also she also mentions people say don't make a federal case out of it which is sort of a, a sort of a folk saying that sums up both that decisions should be made locally and also that not every wrong in society has to appeal to law. You know, if my neighbor's keeping too many chickens, you know, for the zoning code in this neighborhood, which she is, 
I'm not going to go to the township <laughs> and say, you know, I demand that you inspect that property because you know, it's like we're neighbors. We have to get along. Yeah, yeah. Maybe there's a, maybe there's a solution that we can, can all find so that, you know, you can do what you want on your property without making the neighborhood smell like a barnyard. So that, you know, it's not everything should be law, but something should be law. And that's, that's a very conservative point too, because it's, it's, it's not one of those, this is the trouble of conservatism is do this, but not too much. You know, it's yeah, yeah. the sort of eons, the, the, the centuries of tradition that, that have over time narrowed the point to where most people will say that's the right amount. And that, that's what makes conservatism different and harder to define when compared to the utopian traditions. Mm-hmm. This lawlessness has gone through ebbs and flows. And, and we're at a point now where in New York and, and San Francisco, in these big cities, they're more or less backing off of enforcing laws. If, if, if it's, I think in San Francisco is like, if it doesn't do a certain amount of damage, then, then the police are just going to stand by and watch. Or, you know, if the, if the crime is not occurring in live action, then there's nothing the police can do about it. I mean, it's just amazing. There's, Mm -hmm. there's so on Twitter now, there's just so many of these videos of guys in black masks, just, vandalizing and there was one i was watching the day before yesterday this guy was just vandalizing a police car in in the middle of the day nypd car yeah and the police don't do a thing about it i just don't understand but you know i guess it goes back to the the same new york times like liberal mindset of if, if we if we put them in prison that that's worse somehow it's better to just have them running amok and uh you know rudy giuliani for you know, all his strengths and weaknesses. I mean, he came in as a mayor and cleaned it up by saying like, you know, you guys who are, who, uh, the window washers who accost people and force them to give you money for cleaning their windows when they don't want it. Well, we're going to toss you in, in jail for the day and really cracking down on and, and, uh, taking to heart the broken, broken windows theory. And it looks like in, in many places that are most that are controlled by, this is not happening in this is not happening in uh, small town USA. You know, this is happening in big cities that are run by very liberal, you know, out to lunch governments, and uh, and, and law and order is just falling to pieces. I think part of that is being a victim of its own success too. Is that people people benefit from the success of the, the tougher policies, and then then they start to forget that this the city that they live in is only possible because of those tough policies. So they think, yeah, oh, you yeah. know, we can, we can be gen- the same way that like, uh, we talk about young people liking communism anymore. Yes. Cause, cause I don't remember it, you know, <laughs> we're, yeah, exactly. we're the last generation to remember the cold war. And although, I mean, there's still China, but it, they're a different situation altogether. So, you know, you sort of forget, Oh yeah, well we didn't really need to be that tough. Look, it was going to fail on its own or you get, it wasn't that bad, you know, who, who even can say, and that's also something she talks about here is just to jump ahead to chapter six a bit is this, um, the only, she says to pass judgment, they fear is to be a moral absolutist. And having been taught that there are no absolutes, they now see any judgment as arbitrary, intolerant, and authoritarian. Yeah. That's what we learned from Leo Strauss too, right? mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, it's the, uh, and also from, uh, bloom when we talked about the uh, the closing of the american mind it's the same with you know with the crime you know there needs to be some sympathy 
in the adversarial system, the, you know, the, the accused has the right to defend himself, and that's an important thing. But after decades of being tough on crime, we're starting to, you know, well, you know, have to have some sympathy for the guy who's smashing that police car in broad daylight. And like, I, don't, I don't see it, but it's happening. And uh, yeah. it's you know, these things swing back and forth. Yeah. We'll have to learn the lessons again when it gets too bad. So she ha- she also has a chapter on religion, saying the the upside of religion is, she says the practice of religion has a high correlation with family stability, community activity, charitable contributions, and a low correlation with suicide, depression, drug addiction, alcoholism, and crime. And you know there could be more than one reason for that. It, it could be the that God is blessing them. Uh, you know it could be that that they feel that God is blessing them or it could be just that when you're, when you're in a tight grit, um, tight knit group of people who, you know, believe the same way and are helping each other and working towards a goal that that just really improves life outcomes. In either event, ha- having a religious faith and a religious community has huge upsides and, uh, and it's becoming less and less. Although, so, uh, I was listening to this one demographer who was, talking at length about he, he was saying that he thinks that there will be a in the next 50 years will be a a, a resurgence of religion if no other reason than the fact that that uh, religious people are having kids and mm-hmm. <laughs> and non-religious and especially you know uh, the very secular left they really aren't and so yeah the, the country's gonna change and she's i mean that's that's for sure she also talks about this book was written in 99, which was at the end of the what some historians call the Fourth Great Awakening, which is a sort of rise of evangelism and uh, sort of a non denominational or sometimes Pentecostal movement that rose up in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, as she talks about that, it's it's part of a larger view of, of how religious awakenings come and they are cyclical. And I, I believe in that. I think that. So I, I do think that. It'll be, a, I think we're definitely in the 20 years since this book was written, we've kind of ebbed into a serious secular trough on that, you know, on that wave. But there will, yeah, I think there will be a resurgence and we don't know what shape it will take. I mean, every great awakening was different, but it will, uh, it, it happens. And it's sort of, if we knew why, I guess we'd, We'd better understand it, but it, it, these things come and go. And maybe it's the same sort of thing about how we, people have to learn the same lessons over and over and have a hard time internalizing the lessons of previous generations, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, but as we get into extreme secularism, as we're, we seem to be going, eventually there's a, there's a bottom and it'll come back up the same way the secular period of the fifties and sixties led to a different sort of Christian revival in the seventies and eighties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, another, another outgrowth of, of the internet age, <clears throat> you know, we talked many times about how people can self-select and can find their group now and like uh, of like-minded people. Well, I think one interesting result is that, you know, Himmelfarb talks about how, how liberal and left-leaning and secular are the journalists at the you know major media outlets and and of course 
She says, overwhelming percentage of academics share the French enlightenment view that religion is pre-modern and therefore obsolete. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like these, these main media institutions and, um, and higher education, like academics who are so far left and before, you know, they kind of had a stranglehold on a lot of the, you know, media outlets and the culture, but you know, now Fox news, Fox nation couldn't be more opposite. And, mm-hmm. and, and, then of course on the internet there's every every group shape and size which you know there are serious downsides to that but i think one one interesting upside is that the dominant liberal culture has just had such a solvent effect on on the entire country and but it, it'll be interesting to see if if the internet like facilitates an ability of of groups to find each other and thrive in a way that you know, never could have before. I mean, it does for the fringe, but it could also for the, you know, more, you know, positive um, ends like this. That's a good point. I mean, we talked earlier about how, how much technology affected culture in the industrial revolution and in the birth control of the sexual revolution. So yeah, it's to see uh, an internet, the effect of internet on religion, I think is still, we're still yet to come. Mm-hmm. I'd say in in the in closing, Himmelfarb doesn't predict, like many did in her time, that the uh, religious trends of her day would would transform the mass culture. I think she thinks that's too optimistic, but that it will invigorate what she calls the dissident culture, which is you know the remaining people who are still in the old school virtues. Mm-hmm. And that's in a twenty year since then. I mean, I think when we discussed Rod Dreyer's book the other week. That's kind of, I think he is saying the same thing, you know, today that there's not, he doesn't expect uh, anything we do is going to cause a mass religious revival in the next few years. He just wants those who are still in that dissident culture to be able to survive and preserve what's good for perhaps someday when it eventually uh, does revive. You know, maybe in our lifetime, maybe not. So I think it's a it's a measured optimism in this book that you know the virtues are in decline, but they won't decline forever. And uh, you know, those who still keep them are going to sort of keep the keep the lights on for everybody else. I guess that's the hope. Yeah, and I I, I think that what we've learned from from Himmelfarb, from Robert Bork, from Charles Murray is as conservatives, we're, we're deeply concerned about these, these trends, but it's much easier to identify the, the problems and even some of the sources than it is to actually fix the problem. Hmm. And, uh, so I hope that, I hope that you're right, that it corrects and moves in another direction. At this point, there's no way to predict how the, how or when or what, just because of the advancement of technology. But um, I'm, I'm glad these guys were keeping note. And in some ways, like you and I were talking about before before the podcast, that uh, this this does trod ground that we've already covered. But it goes to show like how important this is, especially for conservatism. And and, uh, and I think it's important to me, too. But uh, All right. That's it for Gertrude Himmelfarb. Catch us next time. Thanks. <laughs>